This is the Off the Charts Business Podcast for multi-passionate entrepreneurs. Here, you'll learn how to design a scalable business so you can spend more time outside, away from the screen, through actionable ideas, real-world examples, and pep talks from your host, that's me, Natalie Lucier, founder of Access Ally. In the book Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, she says that so many people murder their creativity by demanding that their art pay the bills. In this episode of the Off the Charts podcast, we're going to be talking with Melissa Casera, who has a dual career as a public relations business owner, as well as a writer for both television and now novels as well. So we're going to be exploring with her what it takes to fuel your creativity, carve out time to be creative and to create art while also paying the bills and making sure that your business, your career is supporting you. And we're going to dive deep into what happened in her career when she decided to add on a creative element outside of her PR business. This is the Off the Charts Business Podcast for multi-passionate entrepreneurs. Here, you'll learn how to design a scalable business so you can spend more time outside, away from the screen, through actionable ideas, real-world examples, and pep talks from your host, that's me, Natalie Lucier, founder of Access Ally. Melissa Casera is a professional screenwriter, best-selling author, and award-winning publicity and content strategist. She has a 15-year-plus track record of helping businesses create an obsessed fan base for their work. I've known Melissa for almost a decade, and when I saw her book Control come out recently, I insta-bought it, read it as soon as it became available, and I just knew I had to have her on the show because her experience in her business, as well as her writing and all of the different things that she's done in her career. It's just so interesting. And I feel like all of us will probably get something out of her story and what she's learned along the way. The cool thing is that Melissa has a dual career. A dual career is when you have income coming from multiple sources. It's a more diversified way of earning an income while also making sure that your art is not going to be suffocated by having to support your life. You have income coming in from a business or another type of career that may be more traditional. And then you also have income coming from your art, whether that's selling a movie or a film script, whether it is selling a novel. And this is what we're going to be exploring more with Melissa, starting with how she got into the field that she is in today. I went to college for public relations. I worked in corporate for a number of years, and then I started my own business when I was 26, which is a really long time ago right now. And, you know, that was, that was essentially my singular focus for a long time until I got into my thirties, like mid thirties. And a friend of mine and I, as a joke, who she's also in marketing and copywriting, and we just wanted a bit of an escape from the business writing. So we both would read like these really fun, guilty pleasure romance novels. And then we would just start writing these ridiculous plot lines and character names and like scenes and send them back and forth to each other. And and then strangely, I was in Los Angeles for speaking at a marketing conference, in fact, and I decided to stay for a couple of weeks and just like hunker down in an Airbnb and figured, well, I mean, let me just give writing a shot. Like I enjoy fiction writing. Why not? Doesn't have to go anywhere. And I bought this book 
that's called The Coffee Break Screenwriter. Fabulous book, by the way, by my now mentor, Pilar Alessandra. And it was, it told me I could write a script in 10 minutes a day. So I said, this sounds perfect. (laughs) And so I drafted my first script there, you know, really didn't think much of it other than I was having fun. It was a hobby. When it was done, I said, this probably is no good, but let me just contact the author of this book and see if she does consultations. And she did. It was almost an accidental career, but also very purposeful because of course I took certain action steps, but, but that is how really this, this all started and came to fruition. When you have a dual career, it might feel like both sides are competing with each other. Maybe your business is taking more time then you can't give as much to your creative outputs or vice versa. You might have a very time sensitive creative project that takes away from client work and paying work. And so what I wanted to know from Melissa is how do you balance these two? And also do they actually feed each other? Sometimes our hobbies don't actually take away from our focused work where we're getting paid, but they can actually help improve the creativity that we bring to our work. And that's definitely the case in my farm. So I spent a lot of time outside with our animals and with planting trees and gardens. And that's when I come up with my best analogies for business. So I wanted to know from Melissa, do these two sides of her business and of her creativity compete with each other? Or is there some sort of benefit to doing both? I write mostly thriller films and then now books. So I write romance books. (laughs) And so they are quite different. But there are certainly parallels as well, and which is nice, right? Because it doesn't feel like I'm completely living this dual life. Um, there are definitely cues that I take from fiction writing and use in my marketing business. There are definitely elements to rolling out movies or books, right? To make them bestsellers or to have something that's a blockbuster that really help when you are working with clients on marketing plans and publicity strategy. So there is a lot of crossover, which is nice. But frankly, I also work with with entrepreneurs who have dual careers who don't have a crossover. An example is, I can't use their name for, for anonymity reasons, but I have a client who is an attorney and also writes like really dirty romance novels under a pen name. (laughs) They do not merge those worlds at all. Like they completely keep it anonymous and separate, but it still works. Right. And, and even though they're unable to do like any type of forward facing like swirl for their two different (laughs) careers, it does help on the back end because they are able to, you know, have these breaks from what might be a really stressful case, right? And then they can kind of escape for a bit and go write their books. And so it it really pays off in the joy equation (laughs) rather than maybe the branding equation. I love the term, the joy equation. Because at the end of the day, I think all of us who want to do more creative work are doing it because of the joy factor. But we also have the financial equation that we need to balance out. And that means having to pay the bills and keep the lights on and the roof over the head and all of those things. And so I asked Melissa how she felt about having her creative career support her financially. And she mentioned that her business was the thing really paying the bills And sometimes, you know, it flip-flopped where she had her creative work bringing in more than her business, but she knew that her business was the thing giving her the financial stability to start. Here's what else she had to say about that. I don't rely on screenwriting income and I 
haven't. That that is like income for another bucket that then gets invested in a different way. And that and that's not to say that there aren't times when one out earns the other, but I I usually don't rely on my creative income. But that's just me. Of course, lots of people do rely on their creative income. I definitely went through waves, I'll be honest, where I wished that I kept it a hobby. And usually those waves were more when I was butting heads with a development executive or, you know, there's a lot of different chains of (laughs) issues that happen when you are working on multi-million dollar productions. Screenwriting is a collaboration. So, so your vision completely is not going to end up on that screen. You are usually trying to make like anywhere from 20 to 30 people happy and taking all of their notes. And it's, it's like half creating and half what I would say lawyering. (laughs) So you're basically like creating and then you're fighting for the work on that page. The reason I started writing books is because I was craving more creative control. So that's not to say that I don't take feedback, that I don't have editors, that I don't have beta readers. But of course, that is is much less when you have like this curated group of people who are giving you really helpful notes and critical notes. But at the same time, they they care about the end product that you want to create. And then, of course, you always have the end decision of I want it. I'll take that note or I won't. Whereas when it comes to screenwriting, well, the end decision is the person paying for that production. So you have to find a way to make them happy. And sometimes that can suck the joy out of things, I'll be honest. And and I've heard this from authors, too, who go the traditional route. Some have great experiences and some feel like their heart was just shattered because they didn't get to write the book they wanted to write or, you know, the promises that were made by the publisher that didn't pay off as far as helping them to promote. And that brings us back to Elizabeth Gilbert's quote in Big Magic, where so many people murder their creativity by demanding that their art pay the bills. I think that no matter what you choose to do, whether you choose to pursue a creative career, a creative division in your business, whatever, I would try to have something that's just for you. What you don't want to do is get trapped in a circumstance where all you're doing is creating for other people, because that is often when like the joy starts to seep out. And at some point you find yourself even subconsciously like seeking validation or just getting kind of tripped up in all of the minutia that happens in that world. So I would say if you're going to pursue a creative route or part of your business will be that, just also add in something that feels joyous and creative just for you. It doesn't matter what that is. That might be like you're writing this novel that like maybe no one's going to see or that you just self-publish on your own without stakes or strings attached. It could mean writing poems. It could mean creating a web series or a fiction podcast or shooting a short film. Everyone's different. But that's what I would recommend so that you're fueling that creative energy consistently of and like creating things that you believe in and want to make. And then go ahead and collect your check, <laughs> you know, making the other things that maybe you need to conceive certain things that you want to do because otherwise that project's going to get shut down. Now we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. 
Did you know Access Ally is the most flexible way to sell and elegantly deliver digital offerings as your business grows, all in one place on WordPress. You can create online courses, memberships, directories, and communities, and even sell team access, all on your terms. Go to accessally.com to get a demo and see why it's the business scaling solution you've been looking for. One of the things that Melissa learned early on in her life was how to flex her rejection muscle. She did a lot of acting and auditioning in her early twenties. She learned that she would just get rejected. That's just the nature of that kind of work. You would go to an audition and you wouldn't get the part. And so this is a muscle that she learned to develop over time and it has served her really well in her creative side as well as her business. So she's figured out how to handle rejection when it comes to scripts and all kinds of other parts of her more creative business. And here's how you can take some of her advice and her life experience when you're facing rejection too. When you get into writing, there is quite a bit of rejection. I would say on average for like every script you write, you can expect like a minimum of a hundred no's. And that's even for writers who are experienced such as myself. I have 12 produced films and I'm still considered a baby writer in the industry. So that just goes to show it's very odd, but that's just how the industry rolls. And so it's rejection, failure, name of the game. There are a lot of screenwriters who never have a project produced. Like you'll never see their work on screen, but they actually make a beautiful living because oftentimes we sell projects and they don't go. So I sold an eight episode television series that made it all the way. They paid out for the series, for the Bible, for all the episode scripts, et cetera. We made it to budgets, like meaning production budgets, and then it got shut down. And then I sold that script again after I got the rights back. So it's like a, an interesting world where a lot of what you do like doesn't always show up on the screen. And that can make it tricky, right? Because I'd say the nose can be sometimes easier than sort of the external world who is constantly like, where can I see your stuff? A lot where they feel a bit defeated because people are always asking like, are you going to be on Netflix? Are you going to be on, you know, HBO? And it's like, truly because they don't have an idea of how the industry works or how long things take, you know, an average life cycle of a production. So if someone buys, for example, a TV show, you're probably not going to see that on air for like about seven years. Well, I write features mostly. So we turn around faster. I write for Lifetime. So we turn around faster. But still, right, like things take time. It's usually about two years from initial idea to like when you might see that on screen. Access Ally is the most flexible way to sell and elegantly deliver digital offerings as your business grows, all in one place on WordPress. You can create online courses, memberships, directories, and communities, and even sell team access, all on your terms. Go to accessally.com to get a demo and see why it's the business scaling solution you've been looking for. As someone who has about 20,000 words written on a novel stashed somewhere on my computer, I was really curious on her take of self-publishing versus the traditional route of publishing and getting a publisher. And so here, Melissa shares with us why she decided to self-publish when it came to her new series. So for books, a few people talked me into like trying to get an agent because they're like, well, of course an agent's going to want to work with you because you have all this experience as a screenwriter, right? 
And so I'm like, ah, you're probably right. And it was really interesting because when I was pitching the book out, so when I was pitching out Control, the book that you read, I was getting interest for sure, but interest in a way that they were like, well, we like this, but like, here's what you would need to change. And look, fair enough, right? Because I deal with that on the film side, but it it was just things I didn't want to compromise on. I was like, this is the story I wanted to tell. And I'm happy to make certain edits, but these were like really broad stroke things. Like we don't want any romance. <laughs> Like things that were, I'm like, then I am not, you say goodbye to me because I, I don't want to show up. So it was just very interesting. But that process can certainly, I think, take writers down if they're not used to that rejection. But again, that's very normal. You pitch a book and you're probably going to get minimum 100 no's. You have to go through those. It's just like sales process. You have to go through the no's to get to the yeses. So I'm very passionate about like looking at rejection and failure as just part of a necessary step. If you're not failing or you're not hearing no, you're probably not playing big enough. I feel the same way with, for example, like book reviews. Like if I don't get bad reviews for my book, I'm probably not getting it out to enough people, right? It's not realistic that you're only going to have like a litany of five-star reviews. <laughs> They're probably all just friends or colleagues, right? In order to really like push it out there, you just have to accept that there are people that will love your work and people that will hate it. And then lots of people that fall in between somewhere. You just brush it off and move on. And I know that's really, really difficult for lots of people. And I get it because I think if you haven't worked in sales or been an actor or played sports, maybe where it's like you miss all the shots that you don't take, <laughs> like they're going to miss shots all the time. But if, if you haven't flexed that muscle, that can be difficult. If I don't have a flop era, then I probably haven't gone as big as I should go or really try. One of the things that really struck me from hearing Melissa's story and how long it takes to get a piece of art onto the big screen or the small screen or published into the world is how long it takes to do things. And it really made me think of tree planting. All of us really want to have these amazing fruits or nuts when we're planting a tree. We can see it in the future, you know, what it's going to look like, what we're going to be able to harvest. But at the same time, we need to do the work today by planting that tree immediately so that in the future, maybe it's going to take seven years, maybe it's going to take 10 years for that tree to start to bear fruit. And I think it's the same in any creative pursuit. We can't expect instant results on day one, whether it's those big projects with tons of stakeholders and different people collaborating to make them happen, or even if it's a self-published novel, those things take time and they take a lot of patience. And this is something that I think Melissa has shown a lot of patience. And I think it's great to hear her refreshing take on being in it for the long term. That's a good metaphor. <laughs> I feel like that needs to be a book. <laughs> and it's a beautiful like message for patience too, right? Because if you think, I think a default sometimes is, is for people to feel impatient, right? Like I want this to happen now or tomorrow. So I had a meltdown like a week ago. I was whining. I'm like, ah, oh. you know, I'm like, all oh, these authors have so many books and I only have like one now. And like, when are my books going to be? And it was just like so ridiculous because of course everyone starts somewhere. But if you think about it in the terms of the tree, like you said, you probably wouldn't have that kind of aggression toward a tree. Like you you wouldn't go out and get mad at your tree. Like, 
the little root in the ground and like slam water on it like grow like you probably aren't going to treat your tree that way but we often will treat things in our career that way and it's really interesting if you're curious to check out melissa's work you can go to melissacasera.com get information about her vip days her books and this is what she had to share about watching her movies okay well all of my produced work is with lifetime network And they don't operate like Netflix, where it's like everything's on demand, right? So it's a little bit tricky sometimes. It's just kind of like whenever they air, they air. And some of them are on their like movie network app. And then some of them are on Amazon Prime. (laughs) It's like a bit all over the place. So I'm sorry that I can't tell you where to watch my movies right now. Since we've been talking about making a career out of your art, or keeping your art separate from your career so much in depth in this episode. One of the things I really wanted to ask Melissa about was the Writers Guild strike. And this is something that obviously affects screenwriters and people who are writing in the industry. And I wanted to know if it's affecting her and if it's affecting other people. Obviously, if people are all in on their writing career, then they basically have all of their income tied to their work versus someone maybe like Melissa, who has that as a dual side of her business. It's not her full-time income. And so I wanted to get her take on the writer's strike and kind of what she sees going on in the industry. And it's specifically for Writers Guild members and the studios who are what they call signatory. So they're like the, the studios that work with the Writers Guild. And I mean, I don't know how much I can share. I know we've been sort of asked not to like give too many details and there's a lot of details online, but I can share from the perspective of there's just been a lot of stuff going on for many years that is a little tricky. A lot of it came when streaming happened. So what a lot of people don't realize is that when you have a project with a streamer, so like that would be Netflix, for example, the rules are completely different because it falls under a different contract. So it falls under what's called new media. And so when that happens, the rates change, there's no residuals. And also there are less episodes that you're being paid for. So Again, like I said, I don't do a lot of TV, but this would be mostly relevant to TV writers. So if you think about like, if you were a writer on Abbott Elementary, which is on ABC, right, you're getting 22 episodes. If you're writing for a project on Netflix, you're probably getting eight to 10, right, at best. It's usually pretty, sometimes six. And so that really, and then you're paid per episode, right? That's how it works. So it's like you're paid for that for the amount of episodes. And then also if you've written a script, you can get like a a bump on top of that. So there's lots of different constructs of how that happens. But ultimately I think it's pretty clear that the way writers used to be paid is just not happening with streaming. And it's really interesting because I think the general public is just learning this now. Whereas before I used to have people say that to me all the time where they would be like, oh, like, I would say, oh, I have this project in development at Netflix. And they're like, oh, finally, like, you must be so thrilled. And I'm like, well, I mean, (laughs) you know, you're, you're thrilled, you're thrilled to work with, you know, to have any work, of course. But frankly, you know, it's really tricky to negotiate deals with streamers. And it would just be like this blank, because right, there's a lot of prestige people might see with um, shows on streaming networks or movies on streaming networks, but then they don't realize like what's happening on the back end. 
interesting. And then the other big piece, of course, is AI. You know, we have AI and there are a lot of writers who are very worried that the studios are just going to be very gleeful to replace us with a bot, right? And I think that's writers across the board are worried about that for sure. It's so wild to me that we're using artificial intelligence to replace the creative fun jobs like writing. And to me, it's such a sad state of the world that we're basically so profit obsessed and that companies are just looking to profit and make as much money as possible and not pay writers or creators. And to me, this is why they're moving towards AI for creative work. It's not because it's better. They want to squeeze as much profit out of a project as possible. It's interesting to think about like how everything really stems from the script, <laughs> but how often like very little gets attributed to that, right? I mean, we truly create the whole world <laughs> and all the words and the concept and everything. And they're, you know, to their credit, there are definitely producers out there who like acknowledge that and are very passionate about that. And then there are people that are not, you know, and then, and I think they feel that perhaps it can be replaced. So, and look, the same thing is happening with books, but I think it's a bit different in the sense that with books, there's, there's just more real estate. Like anyone can come out with a book anywhere and you can find your audience, you know, and, and I think like the good stuff is going to rise above where there's like minimal real estate for multi-million dollar investments into, <laughs> into movies and television. So we'll kind of see how, how it goes. It's, it'd be really interesting, but I think ultimately whatever happens, it's, going to be on the plus side for writers because you know even if we can get some of the demands going that's going to be better than certainly the position that we're in now if you're listening to this now and you want to tackle a project that has been in your heart for a while and you're not quite sure how to get into it or get back to it if you fell off track Melissa is sharing with us some super practical, actionable tips that I think everyone should take to heart if you want to get more of that creative side of your life going. I would say if there is a creative project that you've been, like it's been in the back of your mind or it's like living on your laptop <laughs> in a draft somewhere, definitely revisit that project. And put a little bit of time around it, even for like a truncated period. So instead of saying, I'm going to finish that book, right? I think it's better just to say, okay, I'm going to take the next 30 days and I'm going to commit to putting one hour a week to like sitting down with this idea and seeing what emerges. And that way you're not feeling so pressured, right? Because writing a whole book, big deal, like very overwhelming, but just like chunking it down and seeing how it rolls is usually the better way to go. And also you don't want to suck all the joy out of the process. It's really fascinating how much writing gets done when you're walking. So much of writing is not done sitting on your laptop on the page. Most days I walk about five miles. That is the only time I get any type of ideas or, you know, for dialogue or twists or characters, anything. So if I wasn't walking, my writing would be terrible. And so I think that's the case for most, if not all writers, is like you kind of have to turn your brain off of it, but like give yourself that space without the distractions of 
whatever else might be going on. Like even a dog, I don't even bring my dog on those walks. <laughs> I'm like, these are my walks because I know that it just allows my mind to open and expand. So keep that in mind as well. Like it can just be a permission to give yourself brain space around this creative project. It doesn't have to be a certain certain number of words on the page, which I think can feel really defeating sometimes. And instead, allow yourself to dream and play and like let that project simmer in your brain. And if you're feeling really excited about it, make a playlist for it, make a Pinterest board for it, right? Allow yourself to just vision. And then if it's still feeling joyful and fun, then again, keep carving the time. So give yourself 30 day increments. So just like walk and make sure that you bring something with you, like a phone or something to like capture your ideas. I just do a voice note to myself. That's my favorite way to do it. Another amazing tip that Melissa shared for carving out time and making sure that you actually work on your creative projects is to make sure you have accountability. So she mentions that she has an editor slash book writing coach. And what she does is she expects a certain amount of words sent to her every single week when she's working on a book project. And that keeps her accountable and it makes sure that she actually works on this book project. She also dedicates one day a week to writing on her novels. And then she has different days of the week for different types of things like her VIP days and also working on script projects. So those are very actionable, hands-on things that you can do if you have a creative project and you're trying to carve out time to make them happen. You can also set aside a specific time of the week or get an accountability type of coach. And she specifically mentioned that it has to be someone that you're paying if you can afford it, obviously, because it's not just a friend who's going to say, oh, no problem. Let's still be friends. Let's still go out for ice cream or hang out. She said specifically somebody who is being paid to keep you accountable will tend to work better when it comes to working on a creative project and making sure that you get it done. Now I would love to hear from you. Are you working on a creative project behind the scenes? Is this something that you'd like to pursue on top of your existing career or business? Go ahead and tag me on LinkedIn or reply to this podcast episode on the blog at natalielucier.com. And I can't wait to hear what you're working on and support you in both your creative business and career endeavors. Because at the end of the day, an off the charts life and business is all about defining what goes on your chart, whether that is a creative project like the ones that Melissa shared, or if it's a farm like we are pursuing. And there's so many different things in between that you might really want to bring into your life or your business. To get the show notes and links from today's episode, head over to natalielucier.com and click the podcast link. You can also subscribe to receive email notifications when new podcasts are released. Thanks for listening and until next time. Want to keep growing your business on your terms? Then sign up for my free newsletter, The Momentum Memo. You'll get quick, actionable tips to gain momentum in your business every Tuesday. Head over to natalielucier.com forward slash memo to join over 6,000 other entrepreneurs scaling on their terms. Whether you're just getting started or have been running your business for a while, The Momentum Memo has something for you. 